excited about this new series. Now, let me tell you that this series might sound a little, but it's not. Trust me, you're going to really like this new series. Now, we're still tinkering with the setup in here. And that means that the PowerPoint right now is just showing on this big screen behind me. So I hope where you're sitting, you're able to see the big screen behind me. But I want to talk in this series about the biblical law and how it reflects the character of God. And I'm beyond myself excited. Now, in 1995, a classic movie came out. I don't understand why it got like 19 votes on Rotten Tomatoes or 19% because that's not very high. That's in fact a sign it was a flop. But this was no flop. This was a brilliant movie. I'm sure you've all seen it many times. Judge Dredd with Sylvester Stallone. The setting, Metropolis. The year, 2080. Things are in crisis mode. But there's a cohort of law folks like Judge Dredd who are simultaneously the policeman or policewoman, the uh, 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 prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner all rolled into one. So something's happening in Metropolis. Judge Dredd comes and he assesses it, tries it, finds him guilty, and whammo, takes care of the problem. Now, even though the movie may have been a commercial flop for those uncritical eyes that don't understand the brilliance that is Stallone, there is a line that is just really, really famous in the movie, at least by me. It goes like this. Okay. Hold on. I am the law. If you miss that, let me tell you what he said. I am the law. And he says it three, four, five, ten times in the movie. I am the law. Because in that movie, he's the law. He's the police officer. He's the prosecutor. He's the judge. He's the jury. He's the executioner. He decides what the law is. He enforces the law. It was very efficient until the law turned on him and he was set up for a crime. And then Mr. I am the law becomes uh, in trouble with the law. But he fights it. He says, I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I am the law. Now, that is a vision in the future of what the law may seem like, but it's not that far from what we have in the past. You may be asking this question. What is it that makes law 
law. We lost this last week. Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court is considered, the in, in American government, the ultimate interpreter of law. Supreme Court's not supposed to make law. That's left up to the legislative branch. But the Supreme Court is to interpret the law as applied. So within the framework of that, this question is one that, that is a, a good question to be asked. What makes law, law? We've seen Judge Dredd in the future. I want to go back to the past. King Charles II. Now his daddy, King Charles I, had been... This, let, me, let me put this into context. We're in the 1600s in England. America, 1776, Declaration of Independence. So go back over a hundred years before that. In the 1600s, there was a big fight going on politically in England and Scotland. The big fight was one that included what the limits were of the king's legal authority. And King Charles I was fighting with Parliament because King Charles I said, I am the law. God made me king. I am the representative of God on earth. And what I say goes. Parliament had a fuss with that. They raised their own army. They had kind of a civil war. Uh, king Charles I was uh, executed. And uh, his son fl flee fled into exile to mainland Europe. But after this parliament process went on for a dozen or so years, King Charles II comes back to assume the throne. Now, here's another picture of King Charles II. You'll see he's got almost a little kind of purpley color to him. And uh, uh, purple was a royal color. But if you see King Charles II, don't ever confuse him with a guy who looks a lot like him, a fellow named Ian Gillen. This is just not working good today. Uh, okay, whoops, hold on. Here's King Charles. He comes into power. But should not be confused with Ian Gillen, who kind of looks like him, but he's not dressed in purple. He is rather... The lead singer for Deep Purple. And they look alike, but they are not the same. And so you should never confuse them for being the same. Because, anyway, I'm sorry. I got carried away doing the PowerPoint. King Charles II, the original purple monarch. Seriously, doesn't he kind of look like Ian Gillen? I mean, is that just me? And Ian Gillen's British. I'll bet they're basically descended. The position of King Charles II was represented by this Latin phrase, Rex, Lex, 
Rex is the Latin word for king. Regal comes from that same idea. Rex, king. Lex is the Latin word for law. Rex Lex meant the king is the law. I am the law. It's the judge dread rule. So this was what King Charles II was telling everyone. He's the king, so he's been appointed by God. He's God's representative. Paul says nobody has authority in the government unless God gives it to them. Ergo, you must follow the dictates of King Charles II. He is the law. Now the problem is, back when his daddy was asserting the same thing, there was a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Samuel Rutherford who wrote a book against this concept. This book that he wrote was entitled The Law and the Prince, but he took Rex Lex and reversed it. He made it Lex Rex, which doesn't mean the king is the law. It means the law is the king. He was writing against this, um, uh, well, I don't have it on the title there. It was the Sacrosancto Regum Majestar which means basically the sacred and royal prerogative of Christian kings. It was a treatise that had been written by a king supporter, said the king is the law, and, and against that, Rutherford writes this book that says, no, 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 the law is the king. Now, here's the problem. Uh, that was considered treason. The book was ordered to be burned. He was going to get executed, but for the fact he died before that. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Carolyn clapping for him dying. That's good, Miss Carolyn. Uh, he, he died. Yeah, put your mask back on. He died before. <laughs> but your mask does go with your pretty dress. It's nice and blue. Um, he died before that, before they could execute him. And they tried to burn the book, but the book had been written about 20 years before. The cat's already out of the bag. John Locke, when he starts doing his government work and, and writing on what government's going to be, everybody grabbed hold of this idea that the king is not above the law. The law is above the king. The king can't just willy-nilly walk around judge dreading it. I am the law. No, you're not. You're under the law. And the law is the king. So this should raise another question in our minds. What exactly is law? If the law is over the king, what is that? Webster's Dictionary says the following. It says, the law is a binding custom or practice of a community. A rule of conduct or action prescribed or 
formally recognized as binding or enforced by a controlling authority. Now, if you were to go to law school today, we in law schools in America put the law into certain buckets. So there's criminal law. That is, um, if you rob a store and you get caught and you get found guilty, you're going to jail. Those are crimes. Those are laws that say if you break this, the state will prosecute you and the state will punish you. Then there's another bucket called civil law. This is all sorts of things. This is if you're driving and you blow through a red light and you hit another car, you have to pay for the damages, assuming you're found negligent. This is if you breach a contract, you can be held uh, uh, responsible for the damages if the contract's enforceable. There's this whole world of civil law. There's a bucket that we call immigration law. That is, how do you come into this country legally? Or when you get into this country, how do the rules apply to you? How do you apply for citizenship? How do you apply for a visa? How do you apply for a work visa? How long are you allowed to stay here? When, if ever, do you get to vote? How do you pay your social security? What happens to the immigrant? Can the kids be sent back without the parents, with the parents? Immigration law. There's another bucket called family law. What does it mean to get married? Can you have a same-sex marriage or an opposite-sex? Must it be an opposite-sex marriage? What does it mean to be divorced? How do you get divorced? What happens to the property? What about children? Who gets custody? Who doesn't get custody? Can you take custody away from parents who are married? And does state take custody? These are issues of family law. There's law on trusts and estates. What happens to your property when you die? So there are these buckets of law. But now, within the framework of this, as we introduce this series, I want to ask you this question. What about biblical law? When we talk about biblical law, what do we mean? Well, the reference is generally back to what happened on Mount Sinai and in the wilderness with Moses. In that, we get five books of Moses, they're called. The Pentateuch is another word from the Greek word penta, which means five. Uh, Torah is a, a, um, another word that's used, the written Torah for those five books. But that's Genesis, that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books. Those together form the written Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word. It means law or teaching. It's got a semantic range of, of meanings. But that is biblical law that's usually referred to. Now that includes the Ten Commandments. So now if we go back to our buckets of law, if we look at the biblical law, in those books, especially the ones that, in a sense, speak more specifically about the laws, you have criminal law. You're told, hey, um, you do this, 
that happens. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're told within the criminal law framework, if you go and and take another man's wife and have sexual relations with her, you're going down. And so is she. There are criminal laws in there. There are also civil laws. Whoops, hold on, hold on, hold on. Civil laws. Um, If you've got an ox and it gores someone because you let them out pell-mell, you'd be in trouble. You could be held to pay damages. If you know your ox has a propensity to gore people, say, yeah, we got to do Our ox is gored before. Then you not only get to be held liable for damages, you can be held liable for punitive damages. Immigration law. How you treat strangers that come into Israel. There's a whole set of laws on that. Family law. How you divorce. When you can divorce. There's a set of laws for that. There's another bucket that we don't have in our legal code so much. But it's a bucket for Israel. And that's a bucket of ceremonial law. How you worship at the temple or the the tabernacle initially. We looked at some of those laws over the last series that I was doing from before we got back into this venue. But here's the key. If law is a rule of conduct or action prescribed as binding or enforced by a controlling authority, we err if we think that's all biblical law is. Biblical law is more than a rule of conduct or action that's prescribed as binding and enforced by a controlling authority. Biblical law is more than that. Our problem is we often think that's all biblical law is because that's what our law is. That's what law is in almost any culture. It's just, okay, we're going to agree, these are the rules, these are binding, and they are binding on everyone. But biblical law has a trait, a a, bad pun, a genesis that is so much more than that. Biblical law is that plus more. Let me explain. We're going to need a new remote control at some point, if you all help me remember. In biblical law, what we got at Sinai, the books of Moses, the Torah. In biblical law, God was actually revealing himself. God is a moral, an ethical being. He made us in his image, hence we are moral and ethical beings. There is right and there is wrong. God has an ethic. And in the law, God said, okay, here you are, late Bronze Age in the Middle East. If I, God were to step into that culture, in that place, 
in that space and time, here is how my character and nature would manifest itself among imperfect people. Here's how my ethics would function and be among imperfect people. And then the instruction is, you need to be like that. The law wasn't an arbitrary list. Now, here's the deal. I want y'all to be thinking about this because we're going to really have fun digging into it. I want you to be thinking about things like, okay, well, why does the law have these wacko things? Like, you can't wear clothes that are mixtures of two different kinds of fibers. I can't have wool and cotton in this suit coat or sports jacket. My socks can't be polyester and I don't know any and I don't know any more fabrics. <laughs> cotton. There. I mean I God gives this law and you think, well that's wackadoodle. How about this one? You can't put an ox and a donkey under the same yoke to plow a field. How about this one? You can't cook kid goat meat, baby goat meat, in the milk of that baby goat's mother. You can do it of another goat milk, just not that kid's mother's milk. I mean, what? So I want you thinking, huh, I can't wait to see how this reflects upon the character of God and God's moral nature. We'll get there. I want you thinking about, well, what about those goofy laws that seem to change at the time of Jesus? You know, Old Testament, don't eat pig, don't eat pork. That's in the, the, the biblical law. And yet... Jesus says all of the foods are clean. Peter has that vision in Acts 10. This is um, a problem for some people who've emailed me before and said, okay, one of the Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath. Why don't we worship on the Sabbath? Why do we do it on Sunday? And some people say, well, the Old Testament law was nailed to the cross of Jesus. I grew up being taught that. So we don't do that anymore. Or let's minimize the Old Testament because we live in the New Testament. Um, I was speaking at chapel at Truett McConnell University on Tuesday of last week. And one of their Bible professors who teaches Old Testament is fond of calling the Old Testament not the Old Testament because he says that makes it sound antiquated. So instead he calls it the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a great idea. The only drawback to that is it's not simply the Hebrew Scriptures. Those are Christian Scriptures too. 
And we've got to be real careful we're not these folks who say, ah, the law, nailed to the cross, it's gone, doesn't apply anymore. It does. In some interesting ways maybe you've not thought of. So I want us to look at biblical law, hence my slide, but as I show up above, not simply as a set of do's and don'ts. I want us to look at it and understand it as a reflection of God's character. In the biblical law, God was revealing himself in that culture and in that time to those people we know as the Israelites. They didn't have an understanding of who God was. He had to reveal himself to them. I say he had to. Greg sent me a great email. Greg's usually over here. Greg, you're hiding. Oh, there you are. That's an act of grace that God did. I mean, God doesn't have to do anything for us. He doesn't even have to give a rip about us. But for the fact it's in his nature too. Because he is a gracious God. And so in his grace, he reveals himself to Israel. In the biblical law. And he says, here's the law. He says, I am the Lord your God. So you consecrate yourselves. You be holy because I'm holy. You follow these laws because I am holy. These are me. This is a revelation of who I am. This is an explanation of my morality. Holy, set apart. Different than what you might think. Kadosh in in Hebrew. Holy. Different than you might think. Higher than you might think. More holy, devout, not common or profane. And so he calls them to be holy and set apart. To use holy language, not profane common language. To use holy lifestyle, not a profane and common lifestyle. To have holy sexuality, not a profane and common sexuality. To have holy everything because he's holy. Now that's what happened. The problem is, if we understand that in biblical law, God was revealing himself, what happened is, over time, the people forgot The Israelites have this massive experience. Moses gives this dramatic interpretation and explanation of the law. And it lasts for a while with some of the people. But over time they forgot. And this is a real pity. Because Moses himself told the Israelites... To lay up these words of mine in your heart, in your soul, your heart. The Hebrew word for heart, is that's where they thought you thought. (laughs) That was your thinking organ. So lay up these words of mine in your brain. Get them in your head, in today's language. And in your soul, that's your essence of who you are. And bind them as a sign on your hand. I'm going to be talking in my video thoughts for the week this week on 
the, the significance of, of body references in Hebrew. And your hand is what you do. So, yes, bind them as a sign on your hand, and, and uh, um, Hasidic Jews and others will do that still today, but that has a deeper meaning than simply put it on your hand. It means bind them as uh, an indicator of what you're doing with your life. Live this way. Put them as frontlets between your eyes doesn't simply mean show off what you got here, but it means see the world through this. Teach them to your children. Don't let this go away. Talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down. Talking so important because most of the people didn't read and write. But talk about it. And then when Moses is dead, Joshua is told, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. The things you say. You'll meditate on it day and night so you're careful to do what's written in it. That's so important because that's a reflection of God. That's your revelation of God. How many people say, I want to see God. I'll believe in him if I can see him. Well, God says, here's one place you're going to see me. At that day and in that age to those people. Now, you go through, you have the period of judges. Some are good, some are bad, uh, the, the, the allegiance of the people to the law. But ultimately, you get kings, you've got King Saul, you got King David, and you got King Solomon. Starts out, but doesn't finish too well. But in the fourth reign of, or year of King Solomon's reign over Israel, he begins to build the temple of the Lord. And the temple takes the place of the tabernacle, and it's got all of these legal symbols of God. I spent multiple weeks this summer talking about those with you that you see here in in the Ark of the Covenant and in the mercy seat that overlays it. You see rich representations of who God is. And that's there in the temple. But over time, it just, the people forget the law. Now here's the key. If the law was a revelation of God, and the people forget the law, how good is their picture of God? Mm -mm. And so idolatry comes in after all they forgot the law that said don't let idolatry in so then they just oh we'll add another god hey this asherah she looks pretty cool we need like a goddess Ooh, we've learned about this new god that's out there molech let's worship him And by the time you get to Solomon's great, 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 grandson Josiah, I think there are 12 of them. The law is so far from being anything anybody remembered or thought of. You've got idols in the temple. The whole temple worship's not even noticeable. And along comes Josiah. And under the reign of Josiah, 
they start renovating the temple, Solomon's temple. And you can just see them kind of knocking down a, a wall here. To, and, and oh my, look, here's a bunch of rusty old sephers, uh, uh, scrolls. Look at this, here's a rusty old scroll. And they take the rusty, uh, I mean not a rusty scroll, they're made out of parchment, it doesn't really rust. Um, an old scroll. And they start reading it. And they, 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 Hilkiah, the high priest, calls in Shaphan, who's, who's come to make a payment to help get some money to pay the workers on the temple re, rebuild, redo. And Hilkiah says, man, we got this. Look at this scroll, man. And, 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 and Shaphan, the king's uh, secretary, starts reading it. And it's the law of Moses. They found the Torah. And oh, by the way, when you start reading it and you see who God really is, you realize how far you've strayed. So they start destroying all the idols. They purify the temple. They destroy the idols who are out and away from the temple. They, 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 they get rid of the priests for those idols. I mean, they had male prostitutes at the time in the name of God and worshiping. They get rid of that. And they clean things up. And they celebrate the Passover. They hadn't even heard of the Passover. And that lasts until Josiah dies. And then his son steps in and just goes right back to all the old stuff. And the Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar, and they annihilate Jerusalem. They destroy the temple and they cart the people off into exile. Now here's the funny part. It is while in exile in Babylon for nearly a hundred years that the people finally begin to care about the law again. Because that law that had been found by the king who was a pathetic king's father said, if you don't follow this stuff and you don't do this stuff, someone's going to come over and take you out. And you've got prophets like Jeremiah who are prophesying, you've strayed from the law. God's going to take you out. And God sent prophet after prophet saying, you've strayed from the law. So now they're taken out. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. And they finally start to care about the law. They finally start to say, we need to pay attention. Now, they're starting to read the law and care about the law. Some of the law is ceremony, how you worship God in the temple or tabernacle. They can't even do that. They don't have one anymore. The temple's gone. Laws on how to sacrifice. They don't have an ability to sacrifice. It's gone. But they're still finally paying attention. In fact, if you take laws like this, Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you'll not do work. They start concentrating and trying to figure that stuff out. And you've got all of these rabbis and, and lawyers who are working on it who say, okay, there are 39 different kinds of work. Let's define all 39 different kinds. And they start talking about an oral, to an oral Torah that they believe God had given through Moses. But they start interpreting all of this kind of law stuff in, in exacting detail because they've been promised to be restored to the land and this time they don't want to fail. 
So they get restored to the land. They rebuild a temple. It takes a long time. By the time of Jesus, it's Herod's temple because of all of the work he did. But at this point in time, the temple is no longer the central place. It's the, uh, 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 it is the central place of worship, but the center of, of Israel's faith, Judah's faith. The Jewish faith is centered not simply in the temple, but it's also centered in the law. And we see this as Jesus comes onto the scene. So enter Jesus. And the law is, is, is such that the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers are always coming to Jesus and challenging him on the law. Remember the young lawyer that came to Jesus and says, okay, we've got the law, which is the most important of all of them. And Jesus says, the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus adds, and there's a second one that's like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer walks away and says, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's real good. Here's a lawyer. Did you know we've got in the New Testament a bunch of letters written by a lawyer. Paul was trained as a lawyer. So you got this lawyer named Paul. And, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. As well as a teacher to the Jews. But Paul comes in and Paul writes to the Corinthians. And in his book we call 2 Corinthians. He says the law... As bright as it was, was a mini- had a ministry of death. The Torah had a ministry of death? What's he talking about? Well, the, the law itself, you can have all of that law that reveals the character of God. And do you know what it does for humans? It shows we don't measure up. The law can tell us what to do, but it doesn't give life. There's nowhere in the law that says if you do all of this, when you die, you're going to live eternally in the blessings of God. It's not in there. The law wasn't the source of eternal life. It had a ministry. It had a purpose. But it's one that comes from death. Ultimately, or leads to death. And then Paul says in a letter to the Galatians, look at this. The law was a pedagogos. Pedagogos. Pi, alpha, iota, delta, uh, uh, alpha, gamma, omega, gamma, OS, omicron, sigma. Pythagogos. And Bible translators have such a frustrating time figuring out how to translate that Greek word. Because we don't have an English word for it. So it gets translated guardian, gets translated tutor, gets translated teacher, gets translated a lot of different things. Can I tell you what it was? A pythagogos was someone in Greek life who was responsible for a young child 
Okay, we've got two young gentlemen sitting right over there. What are your ages, gentlemen? Eight? Not nine. Gotcha. Y'all are too old for a pie to gogos. You are, I'm sorry. But if you were younger, the Pythagogos was in charge of teaching young people their manners. How to behave. How to conduct themselves. And then once the child was old enough to go to school, the Pythagogos wasn't so much in charge of teaching the child their manners, the child hopefully has already learned them. But the Pythagogos would walk the child to school so that they could learn. And then at the end of the school, pick the child up and walk the child home. So how do you translate that? You know, I, I love, I was reading some Philo recently. Philo was a contemporary of Paul's. And Philo lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And he's writing about um, what had happened at a time where the Roman emperor uh, uh, had died and a new emperor was in its place. And the new emperor was one that uh, Flaccus, who was in charge of Alexandria of Egypt, didn't get along with. And Flaccus figures he's going to die. And uh, uh, in it, you, you read this passage. Let's see. Oh, I've got to do this myself now. Or I get to do this myself. All right, let's get this up here to see if we can get this right. So he's talking about this, and he says the following. Whenever Gaius, whenever Gaius caught sight of him at a distance, and he's talking about the fellow who uh, Gaius wants to kill because he just doesn't like him. This guy, uh, he, he's, this guy's name was Macro, and Macro had um, kind of babysat Gaius and kept Gaius in the, the Roman emperor's good graces until the Roman emperor died, and then Gaius takes over. And, and now Gaius doesn't care too much for the fellow who worked for the previous emperor. Whenever Gaius caught sight of this fellow at a distance, he would talk in this way to his companions. He'd say, let us not smile, let us look downcast, for here comes the monitor. Here comes the stickler for straight speaking. Here comes he who's begun to take charge as tutor of a grown man and emperor at this very time which has dismissed and set aside those who tutored him from his earlier years. That word tutor? Pythagogos. In other words, you have a tutor for a while, but then you grow up. You don't need him anymore. You've learned your manners. You know how you behave. And you don't need someone to walk you to school. And so that was his way of saying, let's kill that guy. <laughs> we don't need him anymore. And he still acts like he's responsible for us. The law was the pedagogos, Paul says, to lead us to Christ. Now, how, let's, let's look at this for just a moment. How does the law do this? 
Oops, I got to go back. Oh, I'm so cool. This Now I get to do this myself. I get to mess up instead of everybody. They bought me this because they were tired of me saying, can you all switch me back? And now I have to do it myself. So I'll just say it to myself. So how is the law of Pythagoras to lead us to Christ? In two ways. First of all, I've already referenced. It shows we can't measure up. It says this is the way God wants you to behave. This is the way God would behave. Here's the law. By the way, we will deal with why Jesus seems to change some of the law. And I say seems because he doesn't if you understand what the law really is. But we can't measure up. None of us are going to do it. And so in that sense, it should make us cry out, Lord, who will save me? Because I can't measure up. I'm not good enough. I don't treat my neighbor the way I treat myself. I don't love the Lord my God with all of my heart. I don't love him with all of my mind. I got places he's, he's not very welcome. I don't... I, 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 I'm not there. I need help. Okay? In that sense, the law is taking me to school, to Jesus, where I get my help. The law's taught me my manners, but in the process of teaching my manners, it's also taught me that I ain't very good at doing all of my manners. Sometimes I eat with my elbows on the table, and I need help. But there's a second very critical and often overlooked understanding of how the law is a pedagogos for us. That second one is that Jesus fulfills that law perfectly. For all of my inability to do it, Jesus has the ability to do it. And so by setting up this standard by explaining what the behavior of God is, it shows us, it leads us to Jesus because he's the only one who's ever done it. He truly did love his neighbor as himself. He truly did love the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his body. He gave his life up for his neighbor. He gave his life up in obedience to God. He would give you the shirt off his back. He took umbrage at the things that offended God. So as Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, we have passages like Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus knew no sin. Why? He was God. If the law is 
an expression of how God would behave in human form in that culture, in that time, and in that day, then Jesus, who is God in human form, in that culture, in that time, and in that day, truly does live without sin. He lives perfectly. He is the perfect example of how God would behave in that time and in that place and in that way. And, and, and Hebrews says, Jesus as a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the people come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, are you trying to be a rule breaker? And Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. And I'm focusing on law here, so I'm going to say law. I haven't come to abolish the law. I mean, how do you abolish an expression of God's morality? You don't. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you see law as something more than a written code, if you see it as an expression of God and his morality and his ethics and his behavior, it's not going to change. Now, how we understand it in our culture and in our day will modify appropriately. But God's character, his morality, his ethos... Jesus didn't come to change that. He came to fulfill it. He came to show it. So in this sense, we've got two different ways to see God. You can see God through the law. And that's what I want us to do. In this series, we're going to study the law and we're going to see what the law tells us about God and his character and his morality and his nature. And we will grow in our understanding of God and it will affect who we are because we'll see more of God. You can't see more of God and not be a changed person. Um, I've talked to a couple of people about teaching this series. The first idea to teach it came to me through conversations I was having with uh, David Fleming, Pastor David. And, and he said... You know, he said, 28 years in ministry, years in seminary, nobody's, nobody's saying this. You need to be the voice out there saying this because this is a side of God, a way to look at God that nobody's looking at right now, and we need to get it out there. And he's the one who challenged me to put it into a book. I talked to Pastor Stephen Trammell about it. Pastor Stephen said, this is great. We're going to start studying the Ten Commandments from the pulpit. What wonderful timing. Because you can take it and dig even deeper. And we will look at the Ten Commandments, but we're not simply looking at those. I want to address the goofy laws, if I can be so bold as to call them that, without meaning any disrespect. I want to look at laws that seem to have changed with Jesus. I want to answer the questions of why we worship on a Sunday morning. 
I want us to look at that. So next week, my goal is for us to, to, in part, compare the law that God gave Israel to other legal codes of the nations that surrounded Israel back then. So we can understand culturally what God was saying. And I think that's going to be very important because I, I, I will dare say two ways to see God, not only by looking at the law, but when we look at the law in this sense, we'll see God and we'll also see Jesus because Jesus is God. So I want us to see God better. I want us to see Jesus better. But we know as we look at the law and understand Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate final word. He's the best example we'll ever have of what the law is because he fulfilled it. So I ask you to join me as we run out of time here. Join me in the prayer of Psalm 119.18 where the psalmist says to God, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What a marvelous prayer. I want to bless you and then uh, church starts in 15 minutes so we got to go. Um, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessing upon us in this class, both here in the building and throughout the extension of the, the internet ministry. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see the wonders of your law and in that way, the wonders of you. In Jesus' amen. See you guys next Sunday. Thank you for being here.